I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1, 26 through 27 and 31, and then John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 14 and 18. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. My name is Terry Henderson. I'm not one of the pastors here, uh, but it's my privilege to be able to share with you today. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm sure you are too. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, this summer, we're doing a series on the Apostles' Creed, which we were going to recite a few minutes ago, but didn't, but we'll do it later on. So, right. Um, so, but we're doing this series on the Apostles' Creed. We've learned that in the last couple of weeks that this creed is a summary of our faith, a summary of what we as Christians believe. And these relatively few words bring us back to the basics of our faith and reground us in our core beliefs. And as we've learned, the creed is an ancient document. It's 1,700 years old, and it's recited by many Christian denominations all around the world every day, every week. A couple of years ago, I was in London on a business trip, and I got there Sunday morning, and I had the opportunity to attend a worship service at Westminster Abbey, which is a really old building where they did the Westminster Confession and so forth. So it's a really cool place to be. And it's an Anglican church, and so a lot of the, what they did in the service was unfamiliar to me. But at one point in the service, we stood together, and we faced east, which is the way they do it, and they recited the Apostles' Creed. 
And at that moment, I felt like I was part of what was going on in that place because we shared common beliefs with all those people in that place. It was a very special time uh, for me. Two weeks ago, Jonathan introduced this series, and he talked about the creed, and he focused on the words, I believe in. And he talked about the fact that this is not believing about something, but believing into, being able to stake your life on it. Not believing about, but believing in. And he said, I really like what he said, if you can recite this and believe it enough to stake your life on it, you're a Christian, because this is what Christians believe. So that was week one. And last week, we talked about God the Father Almighty. We learned that God is not only a powerful, sovereign God, but at the same time, a personal, tender Father. Also last week, we learned that Jonathan has a very unhealthy hatred toward fire ants. And someday we're going to explore that further, but not today. So this morning, we come to the third part of the series, Maker of Heaven and Earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Some newer versions of the creed say creator of heaven and earth. And we're going to look at what what this tells us about God as our creator and what it tells uh, about ourselves, what it tells us about ourselves as the created. And there may be some implications of that. Now, one of the fears of someone like me who doesn't do this on a regular basis is this. What if I run out of things to say in five minutes? That's my biggest fear. Your biggest fear is probably, wow, he doesn't do this very often, so he's got a lot to say. We're going to be here for an hour and a half. (laughs) Now, I'm hoping we land in the middle somewhere and we can leave as friends today still. Um, And maybe if we leave really early, I'll gain some new friends. So that's my goal. All right, so let's look at the creator. One of our scripture passages this morning that Susan read is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. A lot of times when you're reading a book, the author begins by developing the main character, right? So you find out a little bit about their background, where he or she came from, and so forth. Moses wrote Genesis. He didn't do any of that. He starts with, in the beginning, in other words, when there was nothing, there was God. And he created everything. Moses doesn't try to explain where God came from. The methods he used to create the heavens and the earth, when he did it, Moses just makes this very bold statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the very first thing we see in the Bible, and it begins to tell us who God is and what he's like. Now, this overlaps a little bit with last week, God the Father Almighty. So one way we see God's might and his power is that out of nothing, he created everything. For thousands of years, man has been on a quest to figure out the origins of the universe, still today. There are opposing views as to how everything came into being, even opposing secular views. You've heard them from scientists and others. There are many, perhaps, but let me just focus on a couple of the secular views. First, there's the view that in the beginning, there was nothing, and somehow matter appeared And over billions of years, that matter changed and combined and split and multiplied and morphed into everything we see today. Another view says, that's ridiculous. How could that be? Something can't come from nothing. So they say, in the beginning, there was matter. Little molecules or whatever. 
And over billions of years, that matter changed and combined and split and exploded and multiplied and morphed into everything we see today. So those are a couple of views. In other words, we got where we are today by random chance. It just happened. This is the secularist view. And you got to admit, it takes a lot of faith to believe that. It really does. Even some scientists are questioning this idea of random chance. There's a guy named Fred Hoyle. Uh, I think he died in the 2000s, but he, he was a British astrophysicist, which is the hardest word I have to say today, and I think I got it right. He, he said this. This is the scientist. He said, once we see, however, that the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make it absurd, it becomes sensible to think that favorable properties of physics on which life depends on are in every respect deliberate. In other words, it didn't happen by chance. It's therefore almost inevitable that our own measure of intelligence, in other words, we look at how smart we are, must reflect higher intelligences even to the limit of God. Such a theory is so obvious that one wonders why it's not widely accepted as being self-evident. And he goes on, the reasons are psychological rather than scientific. And then he says this as an illustration. He says that the chance that higher life forms might have emerged in this way by random chance is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials that it finds there. So as Christians, those are, those are some secular views, and there are a lot more. Christians believe, however, that we're not here by random chance. We believe that in the beginning, before there was anything, God created everything out of nothing. We don't know how he did it. We don't know when he did it. There's some arguments about how long it took him to do it. There's a lot we don't know. Moses never intended Genesis 1 to be a science lesson that answered all the questions. He simply wanted to introduce us to the creator. That was his goal. He wanted to introduce us to the creator who was uncreated, eternal, and self-existing. He was interested in the who rather than the how of creation. And maybe that's where we ought to focus as well. So this book, Genesis, was written to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. So it's always nice to have in mind who the audience was when you're trying to interpret scripture, right? So you recall that the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years, 430 years or whatever, and they were enslaved for a lot of that time. They had been miraculously delivered by God in what we refer to as the Exodus. And you remember that, the plagues and so forth. So the generation that Moses is telling this story to, and many, many before that generation, had been exposed to the religious practices of Egypt. In ancient Egypt, there were gods and goddesses for everything. There was the sun god Ra. I mean, you've seen the Indiana Jones movies and stuff. I don't need to tell you all this stuff, but they, have, they had uh, gods for everything. The Nile River, the sea, the moon, the stars, everything. They had gods attached to everything in nature. I even read the other day that they had a god of baboons. So they were pretty inclusive with their, with their gods. The Israelites had been deeply influenced by seeing the Egyptians worship all these gods all of these years. So in Genesis, Moses says to them, look, you've ex been exposed to all these gods, the moon, the sun, the stars, and so on. Let me set the record straight for you. Our God, our Jehovah God, the one that just delivered us from bondage, the one true God, 
It's he who made the sun and the stars and everything else the Egyptians worshipped, even the baboons. Now, we use the word creator a lot. A chef creates a wonderful meal. Steve Jobs created the iPhone. TV shows have creators. An artist creates a beautiful sculpture. They're all great accomplishments. But they all started with something, right? There were circuits and transistors. Do we use transistors anymore? Circuits and, and stuff. And, and the sculpture, uh, the artist uses clay or whatever. And, and so nothing that we create is ever out of nothing. And that's what sets God as our creator apart. He created out of nothing. And he stands outside of creation. He's not part of it. So he designed it all. And he has a purpose in it all. Pastor Ligon Duncan writes, It's God who created the world, and the world is distinct from him. God's not somehow mixed up in the world. He's not woven into the fabric of the world like the God of stones, the God of trees, the God of waters. He's brought those things into being. He's not a spirit which infects the world. He is the spirit who has spoken the world into being. And so the creed reminds us that God is the creator. It brings us back to that. And it's important because it's going to help us better understand the relationship between the creator and creation or the created, which brings us to our next point. The created. The verses following Genesis 1-1, which we didn't print, detail the account of God creating the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the plants and the animals and the fish and everything that we see. In other words, all the beauty we see in nature, God made it. And at the end, as Susan read, he called it very good. And we get to enjoy it. And I'm really happy we do. For example, we're lucky where we live to be able to see a sunrise at the beach or a sunset at the beach on the same day if we want to, right? Imagine your favorite place in nature. Maybe it's the mountains, and you just enjoy sitting and watching the majesty of the mountains and the fog rolling in and all that. Or you like the beach, or you like a river, or a lake, or a quiet forest, or you like to see tarpon roll in a flat ocean, or you like to see a turkey gobbling in the woods, or whatever that happens to be. It's beautiful, all of it. I was walking in my neighborhood this morning, and I saw seven squirrels in a place about from me to Barry. Sandhill cranes, a snake, birds flying. And it just it amazes me every time I see that. He didn't have to make it this fabulous, but he did. You ever wonder why? I mean, why couldn't he have made things more black and white and gray than he did in living color like we see them? Psalm 19 gives us a hint. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everything that God made is for his glory. And here's where we've collectively messed this up. Jonathan referred to it as prayer earlier. We do love nature, don't we? We refer to it as Mother Nature, Mother Earth even. We hold it in high esteem, and we should. We should enjoy it, but we also should do what we can to protect it, of course. But many in our culture today and in cultures before us place the primary value on creation itself. And they end up worshiping creation rather than the creator. 
Now, this was easy to see in Egypt because they had gods attached to all of them. But how many times have we seen us make idols of the same thing? They're all looking for God in creation. St. Augustine wrote this. I asked the earth, and it answered me, I am not he. And whatsoever things are in it confirm the same. I asked the sea and the depths and the living creeping things, and they answered We are not thy God. Seek above us. I asked the morning air, and the whole air with its inhabitants answered, We're not thy God. I asked the heavens, moon, sun, stars, nor, they say, are we the God whom thou seekest. And I replied to all the things which encompass the door of my flesh. Ye have told me of my God that you are not he. Tell me something more of him. And they cried out with a loud voice, He made us. See, creation is pointing beyond itself to the creator. That's the way it's always supposed to be. Paul wrote in Romans 19, one nineteen and following, he said this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. And then he goes on claiming to be wise, they became fools And here it is, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, man started worshiping creatures rather than the creator. But as Christians, we see beyond creation, but we have to continue to remind ourselves of that. We see beyond creation to the one who created it all. So next time you see a sunset or a waterfall or a mountain peak or a canyon... Before you take a picture to put on the Facebook or the Twitter, stand in awe for a minute and take it in. And don't worship it, but worship the creator for making it. That's how we can relate to to creation. Now, there's there's an account later in Genesis, which Susan did read earlier. So after God finished creating all the the natural world that we see, the sky and stars and animals and, and so forth, he created humans. But there's a unique and critical difference. He created man and woman in his image. No other creature can say that. See, God made you in his image. He made you just the way you are. Do you see yourself that way? When you look in the mirror first thing in the morning, you're looking at the image of God. Now, some days it's probably harder to believe that than others. But it should change the way, if if you really believe that he created you in his image, it should change the way that you think about yourself. See, if we really believe that, we wouldn't have to seek approval from other people, would we? What they said or didn't say wouldn't define us. The only thing that would matter to us is the opinion of the one who made us. It's hard to get there. Not only are you made in the image of God, this is a little harder to accept, I think, at least for me. Everyone around you is made in the image of God. Do you see them that way? As image bearers of God? Do you see your toddler as an image bearer of God? Your husband? Your wife? Your ex-husband? Your ex-wife? Co-workers? Friends? Enemies? See, if we believed that the people around us were also made by God in the image of God, 
it may just change the way we relate to them. If we really believe that they are also created in his image, we may be more forgiving, more loving, more tolerant of the fact that they're maybe not just like us. They are made in the image of God, and you are made in the image of God. And that truth should impact the way we look at ourselves and at others. I read, um, I didn't write this down, but I read a, a quote from uh, Keller the other day that said, it's hard to forgive someone when you think you're superior to them. Something along those lines. Um, because we, we sometimes think, yeah, God, God looks at me one way, but he certainly couldn't look at Jonathan that way or, or the people in, you know, in Afghanistan that way or whatever it happens to be. So God made everything we say, we see, he made us in his image. But he didn't just start it all spinning and step away, did he? Our assurance of pardon stated that, that by him all things hold together. In other words, things don't happen without his knowledge and without his um, involvement. Psalm 104 describes the majesty of creation, but it also gives some great insight to God's eternal, ongoing care. Let me just read just a couple of verses out of there that, that just describe marvelously how God created it, but still sustains it. The psalmist starts, O Lord my God, you're great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. You stretched out the heavens like a tent. You set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. So he talked about at the beginning how God created things. And then he, he goes on. He makes, present tense, springs pour into the ravines. They give water to the beasts of the fields. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread that sustains his heart. The sun knows when to go down. The lions roar for their prey and seek food from God. These all look to you to give them food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. So that's our God. He didn't just start it all and step away. He is involved. He is um, his providence is providing for us on a daily basis. So the psalmist glorifies God, not just for the creation, but the, his loving provision as he goes along. So God is still involved. And Jesus even confirmed this in Matthew 6. You remember what he said to the, the uh, disciples? He said, why are you so worried about everything? Look at the birds. God takes care of them. Look at the flowers. He takes care of them. How much more do you think he's going to take care of you? And so he is involved in our lives. And Jonathan talked about this last week, that God was a personal God. And when I was growing up, and even into adulthood to some degree, I viewed God not as this loving, personal, involved God, but rather as a distant and impersonal God, and sometimes wrathful. I felt like God was mad at me all the time. I pictured God at as playing one of those whack-a-mole games like you see at the carnival, right? So every time I sinned, he was waiting there with a mallet as I popped my head up to just whack me, and I kept popping my head up, and he kept whacking me. And so that's the way that I saw God, is he's just waiting for me to mess up. I was living under a false understanding of the gospel that said, when I became a Christian, 
And if I tried hard enough and went to church enough and all that stuff, sin wouldn't be an issue. So when I did sin, which happened a lot, I lived in fear that God would punish me every time it happened. It's funny. I, fortunately, I've, I've, uh, I now understand God a little differently. But I was talking to, uh, I can't remember a while back, I was talking to Lyle Caswell, who's the pastor of Christ Community in Lakeland. And I was joking around about something. I said, yeah, if I do that, God's going to get mad at me. And he just grinned. And if you know Lyle, you know something's coming. And he, he just looked at me and he said, you know, almost patronizingly, Terry, God can't be mad at you. He took all of his wrath out on the cross on Jesus. And, you know, and I've never forgotten that. And when I think God may be mad at me, I think of that. So I had this false picture of God. And it was a terrible way to live. I was afraid of God because that's the way I misunderstood the gospel. See, I wish I had heard about the tender father we talked about last week. I wish I had heard and believed Zephaniah 3.17. He takes great delight in me. He rejoices over me with singing. I wish I had heard and believed Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wish I had heard that about God. But at the time, I had a wrong view of him. I didn't see him as almighty, personal tender. I didn't see myself made in his image. I didn't think he cared for me. I certainly didn't think he was for me. And maybe you've been there before too. So we believe in God the Father Almighty. We say that and we believe it. And we believe that he is good. I think we would all agree with that. But what happens when it doesn't feel like he's good? What happens when Bad stuff happens. Maybe we get bad news from the doctor or we're faced with the loss of someone or our marriage is struggling or our kids are difficult or we lose our job and you can fill in the blanks, the list goes on and we've all been there to one degree or another. And sometimes you want to say, God, are you really in control of all this? Do you really know what you're doing? Of course, the answer is yes. God does know what he's doing, but it's hard to believe that or at least feel that sometimes. Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song back in the 70s called The Wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald. Maybe some of you um, more mature people have heard that. But the song is about a shipwreck um, during these hurricane-like storm, this hurricane-like storm on Lake Superior in 1975 where 29 crew members were lost and the ship was lost. And there's a haunting line in that song, and I I catch this every time I hear it, and here's what it says. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? That's a question we had too, right? When tragedy strikes, where's God's love? Where is that? See, we're disappointed in him because he didn't he didn't do what we thought he should have. he didn't save those 29 people he didn't he didn't keep, let me keep my job he didn't do those things and so we get disappointed in him if we're not careful right at least i've felt that way there's a another line of, in a song this time by the eagles that says this well this is all i got i don't have any i got no harry potter lord of the rings i got nothing so um, the Eagles, you've heard of them. Um, there's a little line in one of their songs that says, they say that anger is just love disappointed. 
you know, and I thought about that. I thought, well, what does Don Henley know about, you know, theology? But that's, that, that's it. See, if we're not careful, we can become not just disappointed in God, but angry toward him. Now, he's big enough to handle that, but that's, that's where the progression goes. So if you think about it, in marriage, a lot of times we get angry with one another is because someone either did something that disappointed us that we didn't expect them to do, or they didn't do something that we expected them to do, and that disappointed us, and, and it turns into anger. And if you think about that in your relationships, you know, Henley might have uh, been on to something there. So a lot of times we feel that way toward God because he didn't do something that we thought he should or he did something we thought he shouldn't do, right? Now, why would, why would we question God? Well, it may be that we've created a view of God that is not totally accurate. One theologian said, God made man in his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. Voltaire said, man made God in his own image. See, we try to get our finite minds around an infinite God who isn't bound by anything. We can't understand why things happen, and we wonder why he even cares, because we don't understand God. There's a guy in the Bible named Job, and he had some of these questions. And you probably recall the story. He was the wealthiest man in his time, but he was also a godly man. He walked with God. Then through a series of tragedies, he lost his children, he lost his fortune, and he even lost his health. He was literally hanging on by a thread. Now, just about the entire book of Job describes how and, and three of his friends uh, and he are trying to figure out how all this could happen. Why would this happen to somebody as good as Job? So after 30 or so chapters of his friends trying to explain where Job went wrong or where God went wrong, they're trying to explain all this, God finally steps into the picture and he taps the mic and he says, uh, Job, Verse, let, me, let me tell you something. So chapter 38, verse 1 says, And God spoke to Job out of the storm, out of the storm he was going through. And God gave um, Job a little lesson on his authority and power and sovereignty. So here's what a few of the things God said to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you seen where I keep the storehouses of snow? Did you know I tell the sea how far it may come and no further? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? And do they report back to you? Here we are. And God continues for four chapters describing his majesty and power and sovereignty to Job. And finally, Job says, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of the things I didn't understand, things too wonderful to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. See, the truth that Job figured out is that we just can't know the mind of God, but we can trust his plan. His perspective is different than ours. He's not slightly smarter than we are. I mean, his IQ isn't like 300, or he's not slightly more powerful than we are. He's not a, he's not a better version of us. He's totally different than us. We're not talking about like the Wizard of Oz where eventually we get to see behind the curtain and go, oh, he is just like us. There is no curtain because there's no equal. He's God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. And here's the frustrating part to us. He's not in a rush. 
because time is precious to us. You know, we have, you know, we're going to live 80 years or 85 or, you know, 100 if maybe we're lucky or unlucky. We're going to live to some length of time. And so time is precious to us. And so we get impatient because God's not working the way we thought. Time doesn't mean a thing to him. Time is eternity to him. And so we get frustrated with that, and he just sits back and goes, ah, you know, if you could see what I see, you'd look at this differently. Tim Keller said, if we knew everything God knows, we'd answer prayers the same way God answers them. But we don't. So when we struggle with understanding God's work or his lack of work, seemingly, in our lives, we have to go back to, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Because he made you, he knows you, he loves you, and he's for you. Even though it doesn't feel that way sometimes. So that's the creator. He is sovereign, he's almighty, and he created everything we see, and he created you in his image, and he continues to work in your life, in your life for good. So how do we know the creator? Is it possible for us to know him? The God we've talked about this morning created everything from nothing. He's sovereign, he's all-powerful, and he's far above the grasp of our understanding. Paul wrote in Romans 11, and one of the songs we sang earlier talked about this. He said this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. In other words, we, you can't understand his ways. For who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor? So Paul's reminding us that God is incomprehensible. He's unknowable. He's infinite. We're finite. And we can't wrap our head around that. And I'll ask you this question. Would you want to serve a God that you could understand? So we're part of creation. He stands outside of it. He's not part of creation. So how can we possibly have a relationship with him? If he's unknowable, as Paul wrote, how can we know him? Well, the short answer is we can't. Unless he wants to know you. But here's the good news. He wants to make himself known to you. And he wants you to know him. One of our scripture passages this morning is from John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And of course, this is speaking of Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then here it is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. See, Jesus, creator God, stepped from eternity into his creation. One translation says he moved into our neighborhood. We were made in his image, but he was willing to become like us. Like the old hymn says, made like him. He was made like us so we could be made like him. He was willing to become like us so that we could know God, as it says in verse 18. In John 14, Philip, one of the disciples, asked Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus replied to him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he came, he became flesh to show us the Father. But he didn't stop there. He lived a perfectly obedient life, a life that we should have lived, and he died a death 
that we deserved. We read in our assurance of pardon today that he did all of that. He went to the cross to reconcile us to the Father. So that's what he did. That's why he became flesh. Isn't that amazing? He allowed that very, he became flesh and he allowed that very flesh to be torn apart on the cross so that we could have a relationship with the Creator. Perfect God comes to an imperfect world. He suffered and died in your place and in my place so that we can have a relationship with him, so that we can know him. Tim Keller put it this way, the creator became uncreated so we could be recreated. The creator became uncreated so we could be recreated. He was broken so that we could be made whole. And we're going to celebrate that in just a few minutes at the table today. So let's pray as we prepare to come. God, you are the Father Almighty. And as we saw today, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You stand outside creation. By you, all things hold together. You are the mighty God. And we bow before you and acknowledge that today. And God, we are made in your image. And help us to understand that today. I pray that you would... You would convict us of thinking anything else about ourselves and the people around us. And I pray that it would change the way that we view ourselves and others. And Lord, I pray that when things come along that don't seem good, that we would trust you. That we'd go back to, I believe that you created me and I believe that you are for me. So help us to do that today as well. And then as we... Prepare to come to the table. Thank you that you were willing to become flesh, to be torn apart, to be uncreated, if you would, so that we could know you. Thank you for that, and, and I pray that you would make this a very special time as we celebrate that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, amen. So the good news we heard today, uh, we're image bearers, which should be incredibly humbling to us as we go from here uh, to the way we look at other people but we're image bearers of God. So it should provide great dignity to all of us as we go from here. Uh, Whatever it is that you're facing, know that as you go, he goes with you. Our personal God, our tender father, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, uh, not the one we have made, but the one who's making us and whose truth is informing us and shaping us as we just sang. So receive these words of the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.